Hey everybody, before we get started today, we recorded this episode at the end of last week, but we've changed up our recording and editing setup a bit, so we're sorry it took a few days to post this show. We recorded before Coach K's Black Lives Matter statement, but everything else should be up to date from the end of last week, so let us know if for some reason this episode didn't sound right, because as I said, we're working on some audio upgrades. Okay, enjoy the show. Hi there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 214 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We got a whole bunch of fun things on our plate for you this week. Um, I am Jason Evans coming to you from Atlanta, GA. Um, Joining me as always, my partners in crime, Donald Wine in Washington, D.C. How's it going, Donald? Uh, It's going. It's the weekend and I'm ready to enjoy it. That works. That works. Actually, we should say, yeah, we're recording this on Friday, just a little before noon. So if there's major news that comes out and we don't address it, it probably came out afternoon on Friday. <laughs> and, <laughs> Those news uh, dumps Klein, always kill us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Those Friday news dumps. Uh, and Sam Klein is also here with us. Sam, what, what's going on with you, man? Everything is good. I am continuing to, I don't know if the right word is enjoy summer vacation, but enjoy summer vacation before I turn back into a working person in uh, approximately two months. So um, trying to follow along with all the news and hoping that I and and everyone that I know continues to not get coronavirus. Yes, a very important thing to hope. And we are going to be addressing the coronavirus and its impact on sports um, pretty extensively in a lot of the topics we're going to cover. We got like four or five different things we want to get to. And the first thing is news that just came out, I believe it was just yesterday, yeah, it was yesterday, uh, that John Swafford, the longtime 25-year commissioner of the ACC, a guy who has steered the conference through expansion, through uh, you know uh, teams leaving, teams coming in, uh, a, a new TV network, just the changing scope of, uh, of college sports, John Swafford announced he is retiring. Now, it's not an immediate retirement. He will be retiring um, uh, basically at this time next year. So uh, I, I will say right off the bat, um, I admire him for being there to try and deal with the, the impact of coronavirus on the ACC, which could be incredibly serious. Um, there, there are not unreasonable scenarios where there is where there's no sports played by the ACC in the upcoming season, upcoming year. Um, hopefully that won't be the case, but I mean, it's not impossible to imagine that. So I, I am pleased in, uh, that Swafford, who has been the steady hand at the till for a long time, will will try and guide us through this crisis. Uh, Sam, let me go to you first. Uh, reflect for me a little bit on this guy who has been a uh, a really, really important figure in, in the growth of this conference. I think we like to dog on John Swafford a little bit for being a Tar Heel. He obviously played football at UNC, was the athletic director there, spent basically his whole career as a Chapel Hill guy before becoming an ACC guy. And, and that I think irks some Duke and NC state and other, there are people who say he never stopped being a Carolina guy, that there are things he's done as head of the ACC to favor Carolina, but we're not going to get into that. And, and it's, it's interesting though, because from the perspective of a Duke person, it's yeah, John Swafford is a UNC guy. He's a UNC Homer. He's going to, he's going to tip the scales in favor of UNC. I think we can look back at the the whole academic scandal at UNC and, and think that 
they may have gotten unfairly positive treatment as a result of Swafford being in the position that he was. But if you look at the ACC from farther away, from not from North Carolina, specifically if you think about being like Gary Williams at Maryland, you could say that John Swafford was just in the tank for the traditional schools in the ACC, for the schools from North Carolina and the ones who play by their rules. And and even today, it's interesting that the ACC is still, one, headquartered in Greensboro, which I, I have nothing bad to say specifically about Greensboro, but it is not a big city. It is not a major metro area. It is not super easy to get to, but the conference continues to have its headquarters there. And on top of that, there are still four teams in the conference from the state of North Carolina. That's more than any state has representation in any sport except, I think, for or in any of the big conferences except for California, which is much, much bigger than North Carolina is. So the ACC, while it has expanded very far from where it was in 1997 when John Swafford took over, is still very North Carolina-centric. We still also play a lot of the championships in North Carolina. The Greensboro Coliseum continues to host the ACC tournament not every year, certainly, but it is one of a few arenas that's in the rotation and certainly the odd one out if you kind of step back and look and you say, ah, the ACC tournament is hosted in big cities like New York or Washington, D.C. or or even Tampa is bigger than, than Greensboro is. So John Swafford has maintained the North Carolina-centric nature of the conference. Some would say, I think, I think all of us would agree that we like the old ACC as it is and that it's kind of cool that it maintains its roots. I think that other partisans of other schools or other conferences might say that it's a little bit it's a little backwards and that the ACC should should sort of give up that part of its its uh, affiliation and be more national, which I think Swafford has tried to do. So there's sort of an interesting kind of look at how he's kept it local, but also expanded it. I did want to talk a little bit about expansion because I think that's going to be the thing that John Swafford is most remembered for. He took over, like I said, in the late 90s and oversaw the conference almost doubling in size. When he took over the show, it was nine teams. Now there are 15 or 16, depending on basketball. If you're thinking about men's basketball or football, the, the two sports that really drive all the all the revenue and eyeballs and all that stuff. But in that time, he brought in all these other teams, and I think what was what's good about it is that the ACC obviously expanded its footprint. It's able to make more money as a result of the ACC network and the affiliation with ESPN because it has the likes of Syracuse and Louisville and Boston College and Notre Dame if you, if you consider them a, a member of the conference. What's, I think, kind of a bummer about it is that, to me, the brand of the conference has been diluted a little bit with some of those additions, and they haven't been... I think, as big as the additions that, that other other conferences have made. So like each incremental, each marginal addition has not brought in its its fair worth to the conference. And you might argue with that. You might say that it, it's worthwhile to, to have certain programs there over others. Uh, I, I don't know what the sort of full expected value of each of these programs is as a member of the conference. But I think when you look now at what the ACC is, it's not it, it, to me. It's not as as prestigious as the Big Ten and the SEC, perhaps, who represent you know mostly big state schools and and seem like they have they have these big footprints and also have bigger TV deals. Um, the part of Swafford's legacy that I think 
looks really good now and will fade over time is the success he had in setting up the ACC network and getting the grant of rights and all the and all the TV revenue. I think it looks really good today, and I think the ACC will will look like it's behind in ten or fifteen years. But that'll be so long after he's retired that we won't even really be talking about him anymore. Overall, I think he did a really good job ushering the ACC through its current you know, through the current part of its existence, through expansion, through getting more money through TV deals. And I think we'll look back and, and think that all of those all of those achievements were somewhat quaint. You know, there are a couple of things that I wanted to mention about John Swafford. And, and it's interesting to me, Sam, you kind of brought up one of them. The first thing I wanted to mention, just really quickly, I, I sort of love the fact that in his retirement announcement, um, John Swafford said, uh, he mentioned his wife, Nora. He said, Nora and I have been planning for this to be my last year for a while. And, and I noticed when Duke Athletics sent out to us statements from Kevin White and Mike Shashevsky and David Cutcliffe and and uh, Joanne McCallie, uh, you know, statements about Swafford retiring. And and virtually every one of the statements that people made on behalf of Duke mentioned congratulations to John and Nora. Everyone said congratulations to Nora on on getting her husband to quit doing this. Um, I thought that was kind of uh, kind of cute, and also a good recognition of of the role behind the scenes that uh, that, that she has played in supporting him. And so I, I just wanted to point that out. I think that's kind of nice. But the thing that Sam mentioned that I wanted to to continue to talk about was uh, was expansion, and and whether or not you know we really look back at on it and say that it was a, a good thing. I, I, just timeline, folks. So John Swafford becomes ACC commissioner in 1997. In 2003, you know, five, six years later, he poaches Boston College, Miami, and Virginia Tech from the Big East. And there were several ACC schools that did not want that. Duke was one of them. So Miami, BC, Virginia Tech, in 2011, he adds Pittsburgh and Syracuse. Um, and he also adds Notre Dame, not in football, but in everything else. And then in 2012, when um, Maryland leaves, he adds Louisville. So BC, Miami, Virginia Tech, Pittsburgh, Syracuse, Notre Dame, and Louisville are his additions to the ACC. I was going to say, I agree with Sam. I'm not sure those are great additions. As I, as I look at that list, you know, I don't want to be too mean in picking on some of these schools. Um, I, 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 like, I like Louisville and I like Syracuse because I'm a basketball person. I, I don't know how much Boston College is adding to the ACC. Miami's been okay. Miami football, you know, is up and down and stuff. I, uh, uh, BC and Pittsburgh and Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech football is sometimes good, but lately it hasn't been that good. It's basketball is, you know, almost always. But these are the teams at the bottom of the conf- conference in um, in basketball, and and uh, and they're quite often bottom of the conference in football too. I, I I just don't know how much John Swafford has done to help the conference um, in terms of expansion. Jason, there, there's something interesting that John Swafford mentioned in. I think some of his press releases, and I know Kevin White has talked about it too, when the conference was setting up the ACC network and and getting the current set of television contracts in place, one of the things they were most excited about is, is talking about how the ACC has more people in its footprint than any of the other conferences, which I think spe- it, it speaks to them getting this particular set of schools and looking at them by one metric, which is... If they, if that school represents an entire state, and if all the people in that state care about watching that school on television, then therefore they belong to the conference. So the ACC can claim the entire state of New York because Syracuse is 
is in the ACC and none of the other Power Five uh, conferences have schools in New York. So therefore, ah, the ACC's footprint includes the, I don't know, 30 million people or something who live in New York and no one else gets to claim that. And, and it's a little, I think it speaks to a little bit of the disingenuous nature of how the ACC has conducted this, you know, th- this current set of expansion and goes right to that, which is, sure, we have programs that now are from Massachusetts and New York and Kentucky. And I guess we already had Florida because Florida State joined in the 90s. But, but if you add Miami, if you consider that a different metro, they represent these big areas, but arguably none of them are the most important programs in their region. Uh, Syracuse is is important in New York, but New York City perhaps has more Michigan fans than it has Syracuse fans because there are just that many more Michigan alumni in New York, and same perhaps for Ohio State. In Miami, I assume that there are that there are Miami alumni kind of spread all around the place. There might be a lot in in the city of Miami, but city of Miami might also have a lot of people who are Florida fans or or fans of other Florida programs. Same thing in in Kentucky and Louisville. The, the University of Kentucky is already there, so. So yes, the the footprint is is bigger because of that, but I think that the way that they look at it is a little bit is is, is not doesn't quite pass the sniff test. I, I think when it comes to I was looking at the statements yesterday. It, it's funny now that you mentioned the part about uh, Nora. It almost sounds like Nora's retiring, and Nora's thing was like, "Yo, we retiring." When I say I'm retiring, exactly, and, exactly. And so that's pretty. <laughs> that, but it's also cool that they they all recognize them, and, and the Duke statements at least they all recognized Nora for what she brought to the table, which was uh, a lot, like you said, behind the scenes. I'm going to talk about two things that you guys really you know, I mean, you've brushed on it, but. Uh, two things that I think are his greatest uh, accomplishments and one that I think was overall his biggest failure. I'm going to start with his biggest failure. His biggest failure was getting Notre Dame and not getting them for football because that would have made the conference with so much more extra money and also made the conference stature go all the way up towards the top where you have to, you would have to think about them across all levels in every single sport as equal or better than every other conference in the well, Power Five. Hang on, Donald. The thing I'll say about that, I actually think getting Notre Dame the way he did was was a huge success because I don't think you were ever going – when he did it, even today, you were not going to get Notre Dame. Notre Dame has that exclusive football contract with NBC. You're mm-hmm. not going to get Notre Dame as a football member. I think what Swafford laid the groundwork for was someday – when Notre Dame is ready to join a conference in football, it's the ACC or nothing. I, I well, think Swafford has, has laid that groundwork, and I think that's important. So I, I disagree This for this reason. I grew up in the Big Ten, and the Big Ten has been fighting to get Notre Dame for years in football because it makes sense. We're all the rivalries that they have in the Big Ten with all these Big Ten schools, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, those type of schools. There was a point where the Big Ten said, S or get off the pot, right? cook or get out the kitchen and the ACC could have been part of this because the big 10, what they were trying to do behind the scenes was get all the other power five conferences to stay in, at least in football, Notre Dame join a conference or you're on the outside looking in and the ACC capitulated said, no, 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 no. We, we will keep them because they're going to be everything in, in all our other sports. And really to the point they they've won, uh, I think whether they have, they've won the, uh, the big 10, I'm sorry, the ACC in basketball once, but they also have uh, won a lot in women's basketball. But really when it comes to football, that's where the money was. That's what expansion was all about. And what the ACC didn't do 
is expand with football in mind. They expand it with basketball in mind, which for us, we enjoy because we get a lot of these, you know, big time matchups. But when it comes to the money, they really, you know, went the other way when everyone else is looking for the money in one way. I will say related to that, I think the one thing that behind the scenes that he was very good at is making sure that some key programs didn't leave when this expansion was happening. And what I mean by that is when it came to the SEC trying to poach teams like Clemson, you know, North Carolina, North Carolina State, Florida State, Miami, those schools were getting approached by the SEC, by the Big 12, even I mean, even the Pac-12 were, were trying to do something where they can at least remain relevant in regards of a national stature. And he was very good at making sure that when legislatures started bringing up the fact of, you know, big time schools in their state leaving, he was good at keeping them on board and making sure that the ACC, as, as for the most part, remained intact. We lost Maryland. That was the big loss that we had. But we did gain more than I think we lost in Maryland. So when it comes to that, he and really, honestly, with all this is like, thank you for your service. But I do think when it comes to expansion, he did a lot of things, you know, he did some things good, but he did a lot of things that really won't let the ACC grow. And that is something that's going to be a very big topic for the next commissioner when they come in. I think if Notre Dame ever becomes a full participating member in a conference, it's going to be with the Big Ten and not with the ACC. And they can change their mind the the same way that, you know, all these other schools, Maryland did this. And then all the schools that joined the ACC said, look, we like the old tradition. Syracuse, you know, Jim Boeheim said this. A lot of folks at Syracuse said, we love the old Big East. We loved being able to play Georgetown and UConn and Villanova. But guess what? We're going to make more money playing in the ACC. We're going to be able to support our student athletes more. We're going to be able to pay our coaches more. All these things trickle down from you know, from those programs to the rest of the university and Notre Dame will make the same decision if they ever decide to go that way. That that's my, that's my official prediction on that. Notre Dame won't ever be a full ACC member. One other thing on Swafford that I didn't mention and, and that we talk about a lot is the changing nature of name, image, and likeness and, and how all that is coming to a head right now. I think it's actually a good time for the ACC to be getting a new commissioner because this change is going to be so monumental and and look at the I, I think it'll be curious to watch how the ACC approaches finding a new commissioner and what that new commissioner says about how the ACC wants to approach the discussion on athlete empowerment and name image and likeness. They have a year to sort this out. They have a lot of stakeholders they can they can get input from. They can get input from current and former student athletes as in addition to the commissioners who ultimately hire the the commissioner, uh, the, the athletic directors who ultimately hire the commissioner. So that'll be the president. Sorry, the school presidents. But but either way, those people can can solicit feedback from a lot of different people. And it's actually I think it's a great time to be getting a new commissioner. It's convenient that, that it overlaps with when Swafford, I guess, was was interested in in retiring anyway. And honestly, the lessons that we learned from the year of coronavirus, I don't think will be applicable for athletic departments down the road. So I wouldn't want a new commissioner to have come in two years ago, had to deal with this, you know, enormous issue, and then have moved on from it, because I think eventually we will move on from it, we will be able to live without the virus or have a uh, a cure or a or a vaccine, and then things I think for college sports will mostly go back to normal. But the name, image, and likeness thing is a is a huge change, and it'll be good to have new leadership ushering in this next era. 
So guys, we're going to move on to a new topic now, although it somewhat relates to some of what we were just discussing regarding the coronavirus. Jabari Parker, who plays for Sacramento, he's bounced around the NBA a little bit this season, played for my Atlanta Hawks for a bit, now with Sacramento Kings, one of the teams that is coming back um, uh, to the Orlando NBA restart, one of the teams you know, trying to find their way into the playoffs in the Western Conference. Jabari Parker has tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, the NBA has just announced, we don't have all the names, but they've just announced that they've tested more than 300 players so far, and 16 of them have tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, uh, Donald, you know, I'll go to you first on this. Uh, I guess this represents one of the major challenges that the NBA has with bringing, bringing guys back. Uh, you've got guys finding out maybe they were feeling a little bit down. Maybe, the, you know, maybe they weren't feeling anything. Who knows? What was going on? The circumstances behind um, their their various state of symptoms, but but you know this is this is one of the things that's going to happen as we begin to reopen. Is is these guys find out that they that they are sick, and so then we have to figure out how we quarantine them and what they do, how they stay in shape and the such when they really can't be around anybody while they may be potentially passing this virus to other people. Yeah, and really, when it comes to it, there's a lot of like a lot of things that we can take with this, right? First of all, you, you've had some big names uh, say that they have it. Nikola Jokic is, is probably the biggest of the 16 uh, that has that we know contracted the virus, and he was parting with Novak Djokovic in Serbia. So it is even unclear at right now whether or not he can come to the United States for the next couple of weeks. But then you also have you have some players who are opting out because they are worried about this. Davis Bartens of the Washington Wizards said he's not even going to play in the restart because he is a free agent. He doesn't want to get injured. And he doesn't want to get sick because it will affect his free agency. You yeah, have a couple Willie, other guys. Willie Cauley-Stein just announced he's not going to play, although part of that is his wife is, pre is, is pregnant is due in July. Yes, but, but and, I, and, yeah. and you also have uh, Tre uh, Trevor Risa who – opted out because of a custody uh, case or custody vegetation where the ju judge Gates basically gave him one month and that month was July. And he said, I'm doing this instead of uh, play playing in the restart. So you have some of these things too, but as we move forward, they're going to Orlando, Florida just had, a, they had 8,000 cases reported yesterday alone. That is double their previous high, which was 10 days ago. The Orlando Pride, which is an NWSL team, they are looking to restart on Saturday in Utah. However, 10 players on the team tested positive for the coronavirus after six of them went to a bar one night. They had to pull out of that Challenge Cup, and now it's even undetermined whether or not they actually got the positive or if it was the false positive because now we can't trust testing. And on top of all of that, you have – the worldwide leader and, and trying to get everyone into the you know wide world of sports complex and creating this bubble and all of the effort that the NBA has said it's going to need to take advantage of that, to make this bubble real. On top of that, you also have Major League Soccer, who is going to be in that same bubble, creating a bubble within a bubble. That's right, Cameron. But the issue is on top of all of that, and then there's the racial injustice movement, we haven't even talked about playing basketball. And I, I think when it comes to this, there's a lot of guys who are probably questioning whether this restart is going to be the healthiest. And I think in the end, we have a bunch of players 
who we, I, I think the players will probably know who has contracted it, who tested positive. They have to test again and again and again. All these tests are going to be one barrier. But then after they isolate themselves in Orlando, what are they going to do to make sure that everyone remains safe and that bubble does remain a bubble? They're talking about some of these guys going back and forth between uh, Major League Soccer games that are going to be on the campus. They're talking about Major League Soccer players coming to NBA games that are on the campus. So you can't create a full bubble when you have two leagues with over 20 teams in one spot. And I think a lot of players are, are kind of starting to question whether or not this is really a good idea. We'll see some of that in the next coming weeks as they, you know, I, I think yesterday they were supposed to let them know whether or not they were going to play in the NBA restart. But I think you may see some players over the next couple of weeks saying, yeah, this ain't going to be it. The part about this story that's so interesting is that the like when it came out that the NBA was going to be hosting the games at, at Disney and all the players would be would be there sort of in the bubble, right, as we're talking about, is that we also sort of assumed, look, the NBA has lots of money. Disney has lots of money. They will figure out how to make this work. They, they will create an environment that is not normal for to, to keep everybody safe. I think it's actually OK for this week that players are testing positive. Maybe they show up to camp a couple days late because they're still recovering or because they're still contagious. The whole point of saying, okay, I don't even remember, I think it was like late May when they announced the season was coming back and we're not actually starting the games until July. That was to let there be enough time for players who may have been, you know, in places where they could get the virus, like get it and then recover, hopefully, and and then show up. This is this is normal uh, for, for now. It'll be much worse if somebody tests positive once they're all actually in Orlando at camp or once the games are going on. So I think this is a this is a moment when we need to say remain remain calm, do what is what is recommended for uh, everybody staying safe, you know, get everyone get healthy and then get there, be healthy when you're there and stay that way and and keep it that way. I still think that of all the leagues the NBA is the one that's going to make this work the best. So they're they're still in position to have it happen. Luckily for them, you know, now now you want me to say something something somewhat crass? Now, like, uh, uh, none of the very biggest players, LeBron James hasn't gotten sick yet. James Harden hasn't gotten sick yet. The NBA really needs to make sure that those guys are okay, in addition to everybody else being okay. But um, I, I don't think this is going to derail the whole plan until everyone's actually in Orlando. If they're all in Orlando and someone gets sick, then this is a whole different discussion. So related to that, Sam, I, I think when it comes to the bubble, right, you said, yes, they're trying to get everybody into the bubble so that they can create this bubble and hopefully they can, uh, you know, make it so that it's safer. There's two issues that I have with the bubble. One, it doesn't involve the player, the employees of Disney. And so the employees who are supposed to come in and make sure this bubble safe and the, and the security and the police and all the staff, they get to come in and out every single day. So you still have exposure to the outside world from this bubble just based on the employees coming in. The other issue that is going to present itself is if one player tests positive, that player is no longer eligible to play. Teams are going to have to have a point where they can't resign people. And if, you know, for example, one, it, let's say the Wizards, they go back, they make the playoffs, but then they get six players test positive. They can't replace them. And those players are now out. So what does Washington do? Do they pull out of the playoffs? Do they proceed with, you know, six guys? 
that's going to be, that's what the NBA really needs to work on. And I think that's where the players are kind of like, Hey, you know, right now we can sign players, you know, Trey Burke was signed to replace Willie Cauley Stein, who Jason mentioned is, is out because his wife is due next month. But if Trey Burke goes down there and gets tested positive, who who's replacing him? And I think that is where the NBA needs to be out front with as a league. So, so I, I, I agree with you, Sam. I think they're the one that have been most out front with how they're going to handle this, but that's the one part that I need them. I need them to do more on it and, and say more about. But by the way, you're talking about replacement players. The Lakers supposedly are going to sign J.R. Smith. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I'm so hoping that J.R. Smith is back on a court in a pressure situation on LeBron James team again, just to see what happens after the <laughs> insanity of the, uh, uh, of the, of the NBA finals a couple of years ago when JR didn't shoot when the ball game was tied. Anyway, the, the bottom line that I have on all this stuff is this is an experiment, but let's be real clear. The NBA may have a plan. They may think they know what they're going to do. This is all an experiment. This is them thinking and hoping maybe they can figure out a way to pull it off. And we have already presented, Donald, your scenario of multiple players on a team being ineligible and perhaps that whole team having to pull out. That's a very real possibility. And I think the league will just go, well, we'll figure out what happens when that happens. Because anyone who tells you they can predict exactly you know, the course of this virus and how it's all going to work is lying to you and, um, and don't trust them. <laughs> uh, and, and then the other thing is, I think it is, unfortunate that the NBA chose Orlando. I know that there are a lot of reasons why it makes sense. I know they're going to try and build this, this bubble. We've talked about that a lot, but um, Sam, I think it was you. I forget one of the two of you who noted the number of cases. Florida is one of the places where this is exploding. Now, Florida, Texas, Arizona are probably the worst. California is also really bad. The entire Sunbelt, me here in Georgia, we're starting to get it bad here in Georgia. Um, uh, in the best of all worlds, the NBA would have picked someplace different where this wasn't currently exploding. But, you know, it is what it is. They're experimenting. They're trying to give us sports again. And uh, and I guess that's a good thing if they can do it in a safe way. It seems to me like they're trying to do it in a really safe way. Before we get away from this completely, um, uh, Sam, did you do either you want to talk about Major League Baseball? I know you all are big baseball fans. Baseball is coming back. Um Donald, actually, take it for me on baseball. You got to be excited. 60 game season means everybody is in the playoff race, right? I'm excited and not excited because one, I'm a Tigers fan. The Tigers are terrible. Uh, so 60 games is going to show you how terrible they can be in 60 games. But I, I, I'm going to toss to Sam in a minute because I know Sam and I have been talking about how effed up Major League Baseball has been over the last few weeks with regards to going back and forth with these negotiations. 60 games is kind of like all negotiations were exhausted and they're like, fine, 60 games. We'll just do it. This was something that was proposed back in April. And they said, no, let's go. Let's do this. Let's do this. And they just kept going back and forth. And then they really came back and said, yeah, yeah, that thing that was at the table, April, let's just go ahead and do that because that's all we have time for. So when it comes to Major League Baseball, tying into this, Jason, they were all training, and the, the original idea was they were going to be training and playing in Florida and Arizona at the spring training complexes. New York, the Yankees, and the Mets, New York City, is has been the epicenter of this coronavirus. No one has seen more cases in the entire world than New York City. Those two teams said, we are not going to Florida to 
do our spring training, we're going to stay in New York City. That should tell you everything you need to know about where this coronavirus is at this point and which states are dealing with it properly. The two states that are dealing with it the worst are Florida and Arizona, which is where all of the baseball teams have their spring training complexes. And this is why the new, uh, the new slate that they're doing is you're just playing your division and the, car- and the division in the NL, that's the same. So the Tigers are going to play the AL Central and the NL Central, and that's it. And, that, and they're going to be playing in their home markets because for most people, their home markets are safer than playing at their spring training complex. Sam, take it away. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the one hand, I guess I'm excited that baseball is coming back because I like watching baseball. On the other hand, I think Donald has alluded to it's going to be so different than it normally is. Like basketball is mostly going to look like what we know basketball to be. They're playing on the courts like we're already at the end of the season, so we know who the good teams are. We're basically just getting the playoffs, and and we think it can be in a controlled environment. Baseball is giving us a truncated season, so I think the legitimacy of of any records that are set or, or really any on-the-field play is going to be in question. A lot of players won't be ready because they've had so much time off and, and never really got to get in in-season shape to to be ready to play and then also just because the baseball calendar is so much longer than than other sports i think baseball fans know that it takes the whole season sometimes for things to shake out the way that the way that they are going to shake out it takes teams a while to get good i'm as you guys know a big fan of the washington nationals and 60 games into the season last year the washington nationals still had a losing record and were not projected to make the playoffs so uh, i'm 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 a little apprehensive about what like the the big takeaways from the season are. The other thing that I think is really bothersome and which we've talked about on the NBA side, which is really good, is the way that the league and the players have approached this return to to play. The NBA, as we've said many times, has the Players Association and the league have mostly worked hand in hand to come up with a plan that is safe for players, that is equitable to them, that that allows the games to be played and and for everybody to make money and, and everyone to go home happy. If you've been following the baseball story, it's been nothing like that. The owners and the Players Association have reached like a series of impasses on negotiating how they're going to divide up the revenues and, and how player salaries are going to work out, how the safety protocols are going to work. Donald mentioned that that Florida now is not a great place for people to be traveling around to different stadiums. So, so that's going to be a lot tougher for baseball than it is for basketball, where they can stay in one specific place. And baseball has got, at the end of next season, the their current collective bargaining bargaining agreement is up and you will hear a lot if you're a baseball fan you will hear a lot about how horrible those negotiations are going because both sides now wholly don't trust each other as a result of of the the covid negotiations so i'm already dreading there being a baseball lockout next year as a result of of how poorly these negotiations went and i really just want a normal season for the nats to enjoy a full season of them being reigning World Series champions. I want a full season of everybody making fun of the Astros in person for being a bunch of darn cheaters. And we're just not going to get that in this scenario. So I'm I, I know I want my I want to have my cake and eat it too, but whatever. I'm selfish like that. And and this is this is much more of a bummer than than I would like for the return of baseball to be. Two two quick things. One the return, uh, I guess the universal DH rule is now in effect for both the AL and the NL. That is something that I think a lot of baseball purists will hate, but I really think is going to be better for baseball. I, I'm a big fan of the DH. 
No, I, I, I think that that transition was inevitable. I don't love the DH, but I think I've come around to it being inevitability. So, oh, well. Yeah, and the other thing is the winner so far of the baseball season has been the Houston Astros because we have stopped talking about them on, you know, just in everything that they did, right? They they have kind of skated by. We're like, oh, there's no more, ba- there's no baseball in June? Great. There's no baseball in July? Terrific. Now, uh, yes, they should have a full season where people get to, you know, tarnish, you know, you know, basically bring, besmirch their name like they, they brought on themselves. But in the end, they have been the biggest winners of, not having baseball right now because no one is talking about them and soon maybe they will. So I don't have a lot on baseball. You guys have spoken about it extensively. I think it's, I think it's kind of fun that we're only going to get 60 games because, uh, and, and by the way, that they're doing all kinds of other crazy rules. My son was telling me, I hadn't even paid attention to this. My son told me they're going to do California tiebreakers, which means in extra innings, you start with a runner on second. Yep. Um, automatic runner on second. I just think that kind of stuff. It's sort of like it's little league all over again. And I think that's it's cool. Of, I agree. Really I fun. appreciate that. that that's yeah. something where they should have been. They should have been testing out some of these rules, these little quirky rules in the first place. And they just, you know, baseball is, you know, such a purist game and every, you know, the purists have always outweighed the people who want to try and try and jazz it up. I think one thing you will also think, look to see, and they're probably still working this out for the next collective bargaining agreement is things about how to make the game go faster, because why have a five hour game when you're exposing guys to the coronavirus for five hours every day yeah. when that could be two or three hours? Yeah, I, I um, so I both think it's it's pretty cool and interesting that, that they're doing some of these rules changes and it's only 60 games. I also lament. I mean, look, let's say if, if, if someone is um, is on a home run streak and we're like, oh, I wonder if he could, you know, set some right kind of record, hit 60 plus home runs. We're never going to know because 60 games just doesn't even come close to comparing to, to what we, you know, would get over 162 game season. Um, There, there is one thing that somewhat relates to all this that I want to bring in. Uh, We got, we got an email. uh, We got a question from, from David McInnes, one of our, uh, one of our fans out there who pointed out that, that Duke has said about Duke's reopening, because we're talking about the coronavirus and reopening sports and things like that that Duke's reopening, that all students will be required to remain in Durham for the entire duration of the semester. And he said, how does that work with intercollegiate sports? Does this mean Duke's is not playing sports or do sports get an exemption? Um, I, I think if there are sports, Duke will grant an exception to, to those sports teams and they'll allow them to travel in a way that they are not allowing other students to travel. So that's the answer to David's question. Um, I, I, by the way, folks, we're going to do a mailbag episode very, very soon. If you have questions, send them to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We want questions. We want comments. If you got an interesting comment that you, you know, if it's, if it's good enough, <laughs> we'll read it. <laughs> We're starved for content. But, but guys, how, how do you feel about Duke perhaps having a double standard for athletes versus regular students? And is that really fair to the regular students? If the athletes are leaving campus, they could potentially pick this up and bring it back to what is supposed to be a somewhat sheltered campus. To answer David's question, I, I don't think that the rule was put in place specifically for athletes, or it was really put in place because of the duality of what Duke is doing with the fall semester, having in-person classes as well as virtual classes. So if someone has an all-virtual schedule, why would they need to be 
on campus to do that because they're going to be in the comfort of their own home. And some people would think, okay, why don't I just stay with my parents, save that money of being wherever and taking all my classes online. I think this rule is to say, okay, if you are attending Duke university, we at least want you to have you have that Durham experience. And that part means you have to stay in the Durham area. They're not having any breaks. They're not having fall break. They're ending by Thanksgiving. So, Basically, what they want is to have everybody in Durham for this. I think when it comes to athletics, that's obviously going to be an exception. We can't, the ACC is not going to give us eight home games. So it's going to be fine. I think those players, whoever, whatever fall sports are played, they will go on the road for those games. But we're only talking, you know, for football, we'd be talking four weekends. They're not going to play, I don't think they're going to play a full schedule. That remains to be seen. But only the road games will they go on the road for? But you're also going to have teams coming here to Durham to play the Blue Devils too. So everyone's having to go through the situation. It's 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 not great, but it's what we have right now. Uh, can I give you my my more pessimistic take? I don't think we're having sports in the fall if kids aren't allowed to freely wander around campus. I think that the the people in charge, like Duke, is not run by you know purely money grabbing. Uh, I, I don't know what word I was going to use there, but but notionally, the leadership at Duke cares about the health and safety of the student athletes and of the other people on campus. I don't think players are going to be traveling to other schools to play against other teams and then be returning to campus for anything that looks like normal activities. So if if students are not on campus or if students on campus are, are limited in their movement, I don't think we're having intercollegiate athletics and and. I don't think any of the leadership really wants to say that yet because it's just it's a little bit far out. Maybe things get better. Maybe everyone takes the testing seriously and we're able to contain the virus to a point where where it all goes well. But we talked about how there are all these old coaches and, and it, you know, it's not just in basketball. There are old coaches in football, too. David Cutcliffe is a you know, has had has had to have heart surgery. I think he's in his 60s. Like David Cutcliffe is not going on the road to coach football games uh, in, in the fall if things are still as bad as they are. So. I I think that we're in for a very big reality check that that the conference leadership and and the rest of college athletics have not really said out loud yet, but I think is coming. It's a great point, Sam. Um, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out, folks. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got two more interesting things for you, um, including our look at the best nickname in Duke basketball history. Okay, guys, so uh, just a couple more topics before we wrap things up. Um, I, I want to start with with this. So the other day, um, th there was a, a, a kid who committed to, uh, to Louisville, Elbert L. Ellis, who may be the best junior college prospect um, uh, in the land. Um, he, he committed to Louisville for the class of 2021. Um, a really good player who's going to be joining Louisville. And, and I was reading a, a little bit about his commitment. And, and among the schools that were mentioned that he had considered – was North Carolina Central. And at first I thought it was some kind of typo. I was like, no, no, they meant to say UNC or maybe UNC Charlotte. They couldn't have meant North Carolina Central. But I just it just kind of stuck in the back of my head. I was like, there's no way he's was actually considering North Carolina Central alongside the other big time basketball programs that we're talking about. And again, this is a guy who chose Louisville, the top junior college prospect in, in all of college basketball. So then like a couple days later, I was reading an article about 
Um, one of the top-rated players in the class of 2023, Mikey Williams. He's considered – he is a absolute stud. He's going to be recruited by Duke, Kentucky, UNC, all the, all the heavy hitters. And Mikey Williams said, you know, I'm also considering um, an HBCU, a historically black college or university. Um, he said, I'm, I'm very open to going to an HBCU. And it took me back to L. Ellis saying that he was considering North Carolina Central. And, and, and ESPN – has put out an article that the historically black colleges and universities could become major options for elite basketball prospects who are thinking that in this time of raised attention to to social justice, to racial justice, that maybe the time is right for them to be going to these schools who have always been at the center of those issues and the center of promoting racial justice. So, Donald, let me toss it to you. Tell me if you think, is this something that is really going to start to impact college basketball recruiting um, as more and more players consider the HBCUs? It is going to be a thing. And it's not just going to be in college basketball. It's also going to be college football. We've already seen it in college football and women's college basketball at Liberty, where Jerry Falwell has been very outspoken in his views on black people. And in return, some of his players have said, screw it, I'm leaving. And they have transferred out of that university. Look, when it comes to HBCUs, we, we had Kenny Blakeney uh, on the show back in the fall before as he was taking over at Howard. And Howard is one of those schools that is considered a national school when it comes to HBCUs. But there are 107 HBCUs in the United States, and there's some that have traditions that people just don't know about. Alabama State, Alabama A&M, Hampton, NCA&T. I'll get to them in a second. Spelling and Morehouse, Alcorn State, Prairie View A&M, Grambling Southern, Florida A&M. The list goes on. All of these schools are going to benefit because they're all in prime hotbeds for talent in either football, basketball, or both. And as most of these recruits realize that they don't need what they call predominantly white institutions, if they don't need them to get the exposure necessary to get into the NBA or NFL, more are going to start going there. So it's going to be great for Kenny Blakeney to be able to reach out into the hotbed that is basketball talent here in the DMV and get guys to come to Howard. He's already working on doing that. His staff is set up to do that. But he even said a while back that he doesn't want to waste his time with recruits that he knows doesn't want to take advantage of coming to Howard and and know those traditions and be a part of something special. He wanted guys who were seriously interested. But as, as, as that, he's going to get more looks from recruits. He's going to get recruits where they're going to say, oh, yeah, going to Howard, everyone knows that name. They may know it's the HBCU, but they at least know what Howard is. And I think as recruits are becoming more and more serious and more aware about making the names for themselves at HBCUs, pulling up those institutions as well. But the problem with all of this is it's systemic. HBCUs are working behind the eight ball in two areas, TV money and endowments. For one, the exposure is always there. You'll see it in the NFL. You see a lot of guys go to small schools and they still get drafted in the NFL more than you know some of Power Five schools. But and some teams are going after that money that's not there, the TV money. NCANT, I mentioned them. They're just down the road in Greensboro. They're leaving the MIAC, which is one of the most dominant HBCU conferences ever. The Celebration Bowl is one of the bowls. It's one of the first bowls in the bowl season. It's the de facto Black National Championship. Start in 2015, NCA&T has won four of the five, and they've won the last three. They're a powerhouse. They beat D1 schools. When they played Duke last year, they gave us a run for about you know a half before we t- you know 
pulled away from them. But it was no it was no slouch of a game. Now they're leaving for the Big South Conference because they want a bigger piece of that TV pie. They want to consistently challenge themselves and they want to convert that TV money into things that they don't have, facilities and endowments. They want that TV money. The added exposure is kind of a benefit of that. And they want more people to realize, hey, I don't have to go to the Wakes or the NC States or even Appalachian States to get exposure to go to the pros in football. It's going to be the same in basketball. But really, because of the systemic you know, the systemic racist system that has built at the expense of black people over the last 400 years, the economic barriers that have been set up, the redlining of property means that there's not a lot of black billionaires. So there's not a lot of people who are, who went to HBCUs who go on to be billionaires and go on to, you know, and reinvest that money into that school. I mean, there's, there's a guy at uh, a couple years ago at Howard who said, you know, I'm a, I'm a black billionaire. I'm one of the few that's ever made it. And I, and I want to pay for the college education of every guy, person in this class. That's not normal. And But he did that to make a statement that, hey, nobody is taking a look at these. All these people are going here and they're not getting a lot of money to go to school. They're getting, they're having to pay their own way and they're having to do it the hard way. And so by bringing some of these recruits and having them go to HBCUs, maybe that fun, funnels more money to these institutions. Maybe they get better facilities. Maybe the endowments go up. All of these things are going to help raise the stature of these universities, some of them which already have are, are very prestigious in their own right, but nationally aren't thought of that way. So I think that is where a lot of this is coming from. And I think when it comes to you know Kenny Blakeney and other other guys on the basketball side, they 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 are in great positions too because I think them being in hotbeds for talent for basketball means that they don't have to travel far to grab people. You know, guys here who aren't going to Maryland or they're not going to Georgetown, he can compete with those those schools in D.C. The same goes for some of these guys in Atlanta and in New Orleans when it comes to football. If they don't if they just go out and say, hey, you're not going to LSU, come to Xavier in in, in New Orleans. Like those sort of things are going to be what we'll see over the next few years. But it's still going to take some time because, again, that TV money is not there. The exposure is there, but it's not the TV money comes with more exposure and really the endowments and the facility money isn't there yet. I think overall, this is a, this is hopefully a good development. I think it'd be, it'd be great for the sport of basketball and for all of these schools to get more exposure because we'll get to see different programs with, with different traditions. I know that one of the, one of the neat things, anytime, anytime you get to see some of these schools on, on the NCAA tournament stage, you know, it feels like they bring a ton of support. Uh, a lot of them have have great bands and dancers and dance teams and all that kind of stuff. I think more exposure for for all that is going to be good. So I am, you know, I, I I'm not certainly immersed in the in the HBCU world and and don't know enough about the different individual programs. But yeah, I'm I'm all for for more programs getting getting more exposure and and occasionally taking some of these top kids. Look, Duke doesn't need to have every five-star recruit. Kentucky doesn't need to have every five-star recruit. I think it's neat for them to, to go to other schools in the same way that I think it's neat for, for Duke to occasionally get a four- or five-star guy in football uh, because it means more exposure for more programs. As much as all of this is a, is a business, it's also fun, and, and, and it's, it's fun for players to represent different schools and represent where they're from, and, and all of this leads to more of that. And, and Sam, just like you said – the marching bands are a very, very big deal. If you have been to a homecoming at HBCU, I, you already know. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, the greatest homecoming on earth 
has been canceled for 2020, but NCANT, that's literally what they call their homecoming, and they are not lying. My one of my best friends in the world goes to NCAT. I went for a couple of them back in the day. Swear to God, this is something that everyone needs to take them before they die. But anyway, because of the the marching band atmosphere and and the culture that's there, football is going to be just like you know the rest of of, of college sports. Football is going to be behind the driving of expansion and and facilities and money because where football is, the marching bands are right there because halftime is game time. Look, this this is a a great topic, and and I agree. I think it would be very interesting if we saw this actually start to happen, five-star recruits. But it's worth noting, L. Ellis said, I'm considering NC Central, and he picked Louisville. Mikey Williams has said, I'm going to look at HBCUs. We need to see who he picks. Until we start to see actual five-star football and basketball players picking the HBCUs, it's all just a conversation. I actually, I hope that some of them do. I think it'd be really, like Sam said, it'd be very interesting. Um, it, 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 makes the, it makes the whole game and the, and the structure of it uh, different and better. And I think that would be cool. Uh, even Those though- facilities are going to come into play there. That's really what's going to be yeah. as they improve facilities. Cause again, you know, if you want to get better, you want to have the best facility possible to do it. And some of these HBCUs just don't have that yet. And they're, they're working on it, but it's a slow process, just like everything else. So when it comes to the facilities, like Mikey Williams is, he go- he's going to want to go pro if he's not going to want to do it in, you know, a gym, that that you could go to, you know, total, you know, Bally Fitness or something, or twenty four hour fitness, and have better access to equipment than you do in your college gym. That's what some of these guys are working against, and so that's why I think it's going to take. It's a slow roll, but as they increase that money, cre- increase those facilities, we will see more recruits consider them seriously. All right, guys, we're going to move on to our last topic. Um, this one's going to be a fun one. Uh, Duke men's basketball Twitter. Uh, this week went ahead and, and put out something where they said, hey, what's your favorite Duke nickname of all time? And I read it and I went, this is something we should talk about in the podcast. I think it'd be kind of fun. Um, so uh, Sam, um, I'll, I'll go to you first. Think about the the, the expanse of Duke history. Um, you know, Tinkerbell, Gene Banks, uh, Tyus Stones. I'm not going to name all of them because that wouldn't be fair. Um, I haven't named the one that I think. I think there is definitively one nickname in Duke basketball history that is the best, period, end of story. It ain't even close. But, Sam, I want to hear from you. What do you think are the best Duke nicknames? What is the best Duke nickname? So you and Donald both told me that you think you absolutely know who the best one is. I'm going to, I'm going to guess that it's the landlord. Uh, that, that's, my, that's my official guess. The landlord is an extremely cool nickname. That, that was Sheldon Williams' nickname. Uh, we had him on the show recently. The, I, I don't know. Is that it? Like you, you seem so sure of yourself. I don't want to continue. I have a few of them written down. <laughs> I'm going to jump in and say that um, I, I considered several really good ones. I, I know that I know that Trajan Langdon doesn't like it, but I always like the Alaskan, Alaskan assassin. I know Trajan doesn't like it. He thinks there's a killer kind of um, tone there that Trajan's not a fan of. I th- I, I like the Alaskan assassin, um, but the landlord to me is unquestionably the best nickname of all time. Donald, was that the one you were going to pick also? That was the one I was going to pick specifically for what you said, because I, you know, the Alaskan assassin growing up was the nickname until we found out that Trajan Legman didn't actually really like it. And I think that's part of it, right? Like, you know, we interviewed Sheldon, you know, a few episodes back and, you know, his, like everything that he does has the word landlord in it. So like, if you find him on Twitter, his, it used to be landlord SG, like, so, that is 
that is what you know. You have to have a guy that embraces that. Now I'm going to go back to Sam for other ones because I have a list of ones that I thought are are prime prime candidates for consideration. But I think the landlord hands down wins it. All right. So I, I did a little bit of digging. I, I did some basketball reference searching to to make sure I was fully prepared for this topic, and I learned a few. Uh, so I'm going to share some of the good ones with you that, you know, I, they're not in contention because they are not so readily apparent, but I think they're, they're fun to point out. So Jason already mentioned one of the great ones, which is Tyus Stones. Grant Hill, apparently, this is from his, these are all from Basketball Reference. Grant Hill apparently had a nickname, Mr. Nice, which, which I really like. I feel like Grant Hill sort of embodies Mr. Nice. He's, he's very, he's still very involved at Duke and is sort of a, a, a you know, member of the community. So Mr. Nice is good. Art Heyman apparently was the pest. Did you guys know that Art Heyman was the pest? I never saw Art Heyman play basketball. He's he is much older than I am, so I was unaware of that. Uh, I invite everyone to visit Elton Brand's basketball reference page. Here are Elton Brand's nicknames, according to basketball reference. You're not ready for these. One is Old School Chevy, which I think is a great nickname. It's 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 a tough one to say, but I think it's good for 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 Elton Brand. You know, especially like later in his career, he got a little slower. Old School Chevy. That's a great one. Uh, wait, we're not done yet, though. He also has Horse. Horse is a good nickname. Uh, Elton Brand's a big dude. Slant. I don't know what that refers to, but but maybe that's an inside joke with his teammates. And then lastly, Elton Brand apparently was known to some people as Chief Beef. That's Chief Beef, Elton Brand. So uh, anyway, these are not these are not nicknames apparently that are that are known to Duke fans, but Elton Brand, Chief Beef. AKA the old school Chevy, AKA horse. Really quick, if if Chief Beef had actually caught on a little bit, that would be a contender. That's a great nickname. Chief Beef is a great nickname. I don't know what it what's in reference to. It sounds like Chief Keef, but I don't know if that's what Elton Brand's nickname was was going for. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Johnny Dawkins apparently his nickname is Pooh, P O O H, like Winnie the Pooh. Johnny Dawkins Pooh. I, I, again, I, I don't know what it's in reference to, but Johnny Dawkins, obviously, one of the Duke greats, one of the, you know, maybe top 10 best Duke players ever and, and a longtime assistant. Uh, and then finally, I did want to note, I don't know if, if he ever got a nickname out of it because of this. It wasn't listed on Basketball Reference, but I, I always thought, I don't know if I ever shared this on the show, but I always thought that Emil Jefferson, when he played defense, kind of looked like one of those those blow up things that they have at a car dealership, you know, that they're like waving around and, the, you know, there's like lights coming through them. I always thought Emil Jefferson kind of looked like that because he just had those he had those long skinny arms and, what are and those he was very active. I don't, so I don't know what they're called. I don't know what they're called, but if they have a cool name then that should be Emil Jefferson's nickname. So that's that's really all I had on that topic. Um, this is not to this is not to slander Emil Jefferson. I thought he was awesome at Duke and I loved watching him play, but he did remind me of of one of those blow up things. I'm going to look up what they're called while while you all give your thoughts on on other Duke nicknames. I I mean I wish there was a better, I kind of like Xanos. I wish there was a better nickname for Zion than Xanos. But I think part of it is Zion, his name is so unique that it's kind of a nickname all on its own. So I had some beef with people who were calling him Xanos because that is not what it was called when he first got the nickname. It was Thanos. And it was because on that intro video that they had before home games, it started with him snapping his finger like Thanos and flames going up above him. So the Xanos kind of became because someone probably misspelled Thanos or probably misheard it, and it became that. So I'm going to call him Thanos. But you have to remember that Duke came out with his own nickname for him, and that was the Flying Bulldozer. And I love that one too. 
The Flying Bulldozer is a very good nickname. Guys, I have an update from Wikipedia on, on the status of Emil Jefferson's burgeoning nickname that I just invented. So here's the Wikipedia page I ended up on. The page is called Tube Man. So a tube man, also known as a sky dancer, air dancer, or wacky, waving, inflatable, arm-failing tube man, and originally called the Tall Boy, is an inflatable, moving advertising product comprised of a long fabric tube, which is attached to and powered by an electrical fan. So henceforth... I would like to refer to Emil Jefferson on this program as the Tube Man, and I hope that you guys can get behind that. I like I, it. I am. I'm there. I will. I will not resist that one at all. Uh, by the way, the one we didn't mention. A lot of people say, "Hey, the best nickname is Who's Your Daddy, Battier," but that's not. It wasn't a nickname. It was a cheer for for Shane, and it's a great cheer. I mean, it's the best cheer. Shane Battier. Shane Battier definitely has the best uh, individual player cheer, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah. No, I've heard people refer to Battier as the Batman, uh, but I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that one as a nickname. That one was more of an NBA nickname. It, they didn't call him that in college, but no, in no, the no. NBA, a lot of it, it became because a lot of the uh, a lot of the NBA players who played with him was like, yeah, he's like Batman. Whenever you need him, he's there. Like, like in, in, in reference to like just him being everywhere in the court, which which makes sense. But it wasn't something that started at Duke. I always thought that. Shane Battier's best nickname was was the No Stats All-Star in reference to the famous Michael Lewis article about it. Another one that we haven't brought up yet, Nolan Smith, the People's Champ. Champ is, is a great That's one. Awesome. Embodies embodies him embodies him not just as a player but as a person. So that one's pretty cool too. I, I there's three other ones I want to mention. Two are guys that uh date back to when I was in college. Nick Horvath was known as Horvath of the Hill People, and literally just because how he'd stomp all over the court, and it was uh, it was actually made into a cheer as well. Um, Matt Christensen was the monster, uh, the monsters out of the cage. Anytime he subbed off the bench, that chant would go up heartily. I did not know that Matt Christensen was the monster. That's really good because I feel like every every player who who's of Mormon descent becomes the Storm and Mormon no matter what. So like Matt Christensen to some people may be the Storm and Mormon. So all the Mormons need to get new nicknames because they can't all be the Storm and Mormon. Um, there aren't that many Alaskans, so there could be only one Alaskan assassin. I mean, Monster, it was was one of the best ones we had when I was in school. Uh, I mean, this is not really a nickname. is more of a shortening of the name, but Carlos Boozer being known as Booze and Marshall Plumley being known as MP3. I think in the time that he came around, MP3 was a great nickname for him and also tied into the fact of the family lineage that came through Duke. So guys, my last one on this, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back old school. Um, Brent Musburger, the CBS sports announcer many, many, many years ago, probably, probably before you guys time, you guys have heard of him, of course, but Brent Musburger at one point on a Duke broadcast, this is back in the eighties referred to Marty Nestle. I don't know if you guys remember Marty Nestle. He was, he was actually coach K's first seven footer played very, very little. Marty Nestle came in the game, and Brent Musburger said, here's Marty Nestle. They call him the Puma. And all the Duke students, all of us were like, what? We don't, we've never heard that before. Like, Brent Musburger just made up a nickname out of, out of the blue, out of nowhere. It has never been spoken before by anyone. And he just said, this guy's the Puma, which is a cool nickname. It didn't it, fit Marty Nestle at all. Marty Nestle is the guy that... Uh, we all said Marty Potius, and they both, the originator of the Marty Doesn't Foul chant came from Marty Nestle. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Exactly. But, so, like, Puma doesn't fit him at all. If you if you could ever find a picture, Marty Nestle was 7'1", 
300 pounds, did not move very quickly on the floor. He was the opposite of a Puma. So it was so surprising and it was just, so that's my sort of nickname story. But uh, the landlord, Sam, did you agree with us? Landlord, best nickname of all time? It, I mean, yes. It's the only one, like, it, it, it tells you exactly what Sheldon Williams was uh, on the court. And it also had a cool, it also had a cool cheer to go along with it. Hey, the so, rat. I think, I, I think, I think it had, it had every component of a good nickname. And it still follows him around. Still, people still call him landlord. Yeah. So, so it's a it's a real true nickname. We didn't we didn't have to force it or anything. Uh, so that's going to wrap it up for us here in this edition of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Sam and Donald, thank you for joining me. We had a lot of fun, folks. Again, send in those questions. Send in those comments. We want to hear from you. DBRpodcast at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us. We ha- I hope you had a good time listening. We will be back next week. Until then, Duke Band, take us home.